Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I'm very upset. You know what I like about being upset? Blame. And right now, that's the mindset that I'm in. And you know who I'm blaming? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the liberal magazine The Nation recently published an apology for publishing a poem about homelessness written in black vernacular by Anders Carlson Wee, a white man. Are we going to now have to apologize for all of your beats? (laughs) (laughs) I don't make my beats in black English vernacular, but... uh... So, you know, this is one of those topics that I think we usually avoid, so I won't get too much into it. The most offensive thing about it to me was that it was in poor black English vernacular. Um, oh, so but, you're the arbiter of what's uh, good No, I just black happened, English. I just happened to know. <laughs> it does follow some rules. It was just all over the place. It was like, you know, like when I do an Indian accent, you know, it like turns into Scottish in the middle of it or whatever. You know, that's the offensive part is doing it poorly. I want to hear your Indian turn into Scottish. <laughs> no. I think it'll and sometimes it lapses into Jamaican. No, because my daughter has already told me that any accent that is a non-white European accent is racist to do. So <laughs> that's what happens when you raise kids in Ithaca. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in my house, there's just... <laughs> There's just rampant, <laughs> rampant. Uh, my dog's voice that we I often do is sometimes like a black woman's voice from like the you know the Civil War era or something. Uh, okay, on today's episode, we're going to talk about a recent paper, possibly published, published in some form, um, that argues that being a sports fan is irrational because it makes you unhappy. Um, and it explores the ways in which it's irrational and, may, and, it, and the, the, the evidence that it does make you unhappy, uh, that it reduces utility, and then also briefly suggests some possible reasons why we do it anyway. So we're going to talk about the paper. I have concerns about it, to put it mildly, <laughs> but, I, but I actually think it's investigating like a really interesting question, so I also want to I want to see if there's a way of doing that study better, like investigating that question better than I think this paper does. Um, and that's one, that's a, that question, whether it's possible, is one I'm not sure about. Um, so we can talk about that. By the way, uh, just to close on the nation thing, I don't think they should have apologized. I think that's like you publish the poem, you live with it. Like, yeah, you don't I, throw I your guy, a, the poet, under the bus because you got a lot of protests and people like complaining. 
I feel the same way, but I also think that it was not a good poem to publish. So, like, I think that that, that the error was just, you know, stick by it, leave it as a matter of public record. Like, pulling it isn't going to do anybody any favors. Um, I mean, I suppose it satisfies some some people, but but I agree that that m- mostly because of the deep tradition of journalism um, and of that particular paper and like sticking by like, you know, the lesson here is be willing to defend anything that you publish against any conceivable attack and make that decision before you publish something. I think that if they had thought about it, maybe they would. I I don't think they even had to defend it. They just didn't, shouldn't have apologized for it. Take your beating, but don't now throw the, the, the author, the poet, the poet under well the, the poet himself apologized too and i think there's there is this problem with me that is only one of the problems with the apology is that the apology seems a bit insincere when it is in response to that outrage so it's it's like there is this one part that is well don't like defend defend your actions you know and don't throw the poet under the bus but there's this other part that like i'm just less likely to believe the apology because it's not like this was an off the cuff remark that somebody made where like when they realize how it was, how it was interpreted by people, then they're like, Oh shit, I never realized that. This is like editors. These are people who like think presumably think deeply about what they're publishing and, and the quick turnaround because some people got angry on Twitter just seems insincere to me. It seems insincere. I agree. Even if it was sincere, I think they shouldn't have done it because it's not like the guy lied or there was no fraud. There was no manipulation. There was here. I am submitting a poem per your whatever your policies are. You can decide to publish it or not. They decided to publish it. You got to live with that decision. Even if you regret it, you have to regret it. You know, it's fine to apologize to people privately, but you don't publicly disavow something that's not yours at that point to disavow. Right. And I mean, not that there aren't cases where I think one should apologize, but like if you ran a story that was so like factually incorrect and you fucked up or something like that, like I, and I think journalists have worked out this stuff, right? Like there are times when you retract something and there are times when you correct something and there are times where you don't pull it from record, but you issue another statement or whatever, you know, explaining why you did it. That's all fine. But, but, um, yeah, yeah. It seems as if he, yeah. Okay. What do you think, by the way, about deleting your Twitter history? Like, and this could be a topic for another time, but you know that guy that got fired from the Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah. Um, right? So a lot of people are now deleting their old tweets. And I don't think there's anything wrong with deleting your old tweets just in principle, but it seems it seems like a weird thing. <laughs> so I, after that thing, I tweeted out, I think everybody should just get like a full amnesty for all tweets pre-2016, arbitrarily chosen year. But just anything before that, it doesn't matter what you said. Nobody can give you shit for it. Nobody can fire you for it. That's what I think. Like if I was philosopher king, I would institute that policy. Given that I'm not philosopher king and that policy clearly is not (laughs) instituted and there are all sorts of people. Like I just don't understand the mentality of somebody who scours somebody's old tweets just to do this like what 
what what do you think you're accomplishing? What do you th- like? And this is for both sides. What do you think you're bringing to light? What what do you think you're making better? I I just don't understand the mentality of that. Per- but given that there are these people out there that are doing it. I guess if you'd said some, if I had said a bunch of controversial shit, I might go through the trouble of deleting all my tweets. But I don't, I don't remember right. really saying anything. Well, and there, there are now these like third-party apps that that you can choose to like go through and and delete tweets at whatever time. Yeah. Um, I like I I uh, I think it's no mystery, and you know we've talked about this quite often, including with Molly Crockett, outrageous currency. And not that it's always wrong to be outraged, but you the the value of being the person to find the thing that goes like viral outrage is so clear that there is huge incentive for people to scour everybody's tweets. Is it so clear what the value is? Like the value is is that you get props for being the person to like induce all that outrage. People will follow you now, right? Like people. I guess, like, but like I mean, so, but but it's such, such empty calories. But but you think so, right? So so like obviously the people who are like actually getting outraged don't they don't think that they're eating Twinkies. They think they're eating like a healthy meal. Like they they think that this is justice that this has been brought to light. So they could be wrong about that. So the value, but the value in in actually discovering that somebody is secretly anti-semitic say by looking at their tweet from 2009 to some people that means a lot and so they are incentivized to, i hate that i use that as a verb there's an incentive for them to actually scour right this actually leads into our next uh, exactly our, our, our <laughs> next segment there that that is one way of looking at like incentives and happiness and you know but um, but I don't know if it's necessary. I mean, you're right. There's a le- there's a sense in which you're absolutely right. They are incentivized because it does give you that little dopamine kick to get 200 retweets. Even my thing uh, where I said we should give a full amnesty, like that got you know more retweets than almost <laughs> anything that I've done recently. And I'm sure I was kind of like, <laughs> you know, like yeah. But, it, you know, like those things don't – I don't think you need to be like a particularly reflective person to understand that those things – that's not what we should be striving for in our lives is whatever good feeling that you have from getting like retweeted. No, I'm not – I'm not defending it. I'm simply trying to explain it. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's a mystery that that's the, you know, it's like, why do people eat Twinkies? Like you feel fucking good while you're eating it. And then you feel like shit and you get fat. Like, of course. <laughs> I, I guess. But I mean, I guess my point, like people talk about Twitter as if it's like, like the, like the sirens, you know, and that you have to just get off of it because the appeal of, of, of doing all this shit is so great that you can't resist it. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like that's being overstated now at this point. Like, well, you feel like I, shit when you're doing it. It's like eating, like, a whole bag of M&M's it's like going or something to, like that. It's like being a, a sports fan when your team sucks. <laughs> yes, and we will talk about that in a little bit. But first, very exciting announcement. A, a, a new segment that I, I foresee... <laughs> This is going to be sweeping the nation. It is called, for now, Guilty Confessions. 
I had this inspiration as I was on my fa- returning on my from my family vacation. I had just this inspiration that that we should do that. I texted you. I don't. I think you were just trying to like blow me off, so you said sure. Uh, yeah. Well, I said I I've never done anything wrong. Oh yeah. Really, I had to like work hard at, yeah. at thinking of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it seemed dismissive. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, but I think now you've seen that this is going to launch us into a new stratosphere of, <laughs> <laughs> of popularity. Uh, so the the way I I imagined it is that each of us will confess something about ourselves to each other and also to our listeners, <laughs> and it can be a big confession. You know, it could be like I killed a motherfucker. Right, or, or it can be a small one, like. But one, you know, my idea was it has to be one to two sentences. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's the toughest part, really. Yeah, I mean, especially for us. I don't think two sentences. <laughs> uh, all right, so I agreed. Now, nor I think you should put like music here, like some sort of beat. Oh or, yeah, okay, you know. some some some, uh, but not in black Ma- English vernacular. <laughs> vernacular beat, yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, my I suspect mine is more serious than yours. So you know, <clears throat> first of all, there's no way I'm gonna confess to like a real, real, real shit. But there is something that I feel guilty about, and I felt guilty about for years. Like when I think when I'm going to sleep, like and and something pops into my head to feel guilty about. It's sometimes this. Um, okay, I'm gonna try to get it down to a couple sentences. Two friends of mine figured out that a girl was seeing them both without telling them. And they wanted revenge. And this was in college. I was young, immature. And they wanted revenge. And they wanted to leave her a phone message, sort of uh, accusing her, but anonymously. And they had me leave the phone message. And I read this thing that was very mean. And she dropped out of school because she was so upset by it. And never found out that it was me. On top of it all, she was a sort of friend of mine. And I've been friends on and off with her ever since and i cannot admit ever to having done that until so, until now <laughs> until now which is like luckily let me know my real friends listen to my <laughs> uh wow but, but <clears throat> this wait so let me understand they were pissed off because she was dating both of them in secret and yeah. neither of them knew that she was dating the other one right and and one night we were all uh it was a small enough community in my college that uh just those two guys one of which was my best friend um those two guys ended up having like a conversation over drinks in in the room like we were all just hanging out and they figured it out and they were like what the hell like right and i had this like stupid honor-based ire for my friend on behalf of my friend and uh so so they didn't want to their voices to be recognized and they knew that mine wouldn't be um, in defense of honor <laughs> and honor-based things, <laughs> leaving anonymous phone messages is not something I associate necessarily with. Honor. No, no, with it was totally dishonorable, <laughs> but it was out of a sense of honor uh, for my friend. Uh, agreed, this was not an honorable thing to do. And this l- has always led me to a dilemma that that I'll talk about more once you get past your probably not nearly as salacious confession, um, which is... When is it the best, the ethically correct thing to do to apologize at the risk of hurting someone even more? Because I've always feared that one big reason to admit to do it, to hurting somebody 
is to make your own guilt go away because oftentimes we actually end up like the information could hurt them even more. Right. Right. So that's a good question. So would you, now you don't know this person anymore. You haven't spoken to her in. I, I mean, I would, I am like one degree away from her. Um, so I have spoken to her and we actually like, we're still friends for a while. And, uh, I, the last, but the last time I spoke to her was probably five years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so is it right for you to apologize for it, which she's probably forgotten about it and right, this, would be even more hurt to find out that it came from you? Who, right. It would have been a true dilemma, say, like a year after that, because we like yeah. actually were in the same circle of friends. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I do think that that's one. It's a good guilty confession yeah. <laughs> in it's that... Like a, I don't think there's much. You, I, I don't think the right thing certainly now would be to do, would be to to tell her. And right. And, and the reason I'm guilty, like I was unconditionally like an asshole for doing that. Right. Like I and yeah. I realized that that later. Um, I of course didn't know that it would affect her so deeply. Um, and I'm sure she had other shit going on. But even if I didn't, even if like it would, she would have brushed it off. Like that was just such an asshole, like cowardly fucking thing to do, just to try to please my friends, you know. Yeah. But um, I there is an there's another case of whether or not to confess that I could talk about. But I want you to get to your. Well, I mean, you should save that for the next edition. For the next. Uh, well, it's not. But it's not. It's not about me. It's like a really bad one where somebody did confess to something yeah. and fucked some. Yeah, some, someone else over completely by confessing to it because they implicated somebody. Wow, so yours are, yours are, you took this more seriously than I, I did. I mean, hey, hey, like I, I do my homework. I feel embarrassed saying mine now, but <laughs> here it is. I think it's funny when Trump calls Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. <laughs> I genuinely think that's funny. <laughs> And that is the extremely popular segment, Guilty Confessions. Cue outro music. <laughs> you better come with some better shit next time, man. <laughs> I want to hear about, like, literal dead bodies. This was a little bit of, like, yeah, like an ambush kind of a Trojan yeah, yeah, horse. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you go first. Yeah, I knew. I knew. I knew. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> All right. <laughs> On that note, let's go to our next segment. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we like to thank all the people, the people who get in touch with us, who 
interact with us in all the various different ways that you interact with us on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Instagram, um, emailing us. There's so many really interesting uh, ideas that people send us, perspectives that they give us, and expressions of either gratitude or criticism. All of those things we treasure, we value. And we want to say thank you for that. You can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet us at Tamler at peas at verybadwizards. You can follow us on Instagram. You can like us on Facebook. Rate us on iTunes. Give us a review on iTunes that helps people find us. We're always high in the episode rankings, which is pure numbers, but n- never quite as high in like the top podcasts. And I, and and, and talking to some people, that's like th- that's more of a result of people rating us and writing reviews. So please go and do that if you like it, even if you don't like it, but especially if you do. You can uh, go to our Reddit subreddit that somebody started there's a lot of a ton of discussions lively discussions going on there and you can support us in more tangible ways you can go to our support page click on the amazon link um, before purchases especially expensive purchases but all purchases and we will get a small cut of that you can give us a one-time donation on paypal or become part of our Patreon community, our beloved Patreon community, and give us a small donation each episode. Um, We really appreciate it. We're grateful, and that's what keeps us going through 146 episodes. Uh, Crazy. You can also, uh, for me, this speaking personally, um, if you liked the book, Why Honor Matters, you could rate it on Amazon, share, you know, spread the word that you liked it. That I, I, I would really appreciate that. I am in response to a lot of listeners' requests. Be careful what you wish for. I'm <laughs> going to be the one that narrates the audiobook, and I'm actually do going uh, about to head out to do that in a couple of days. I'm going to fly to Michigan and over two and a half days record the narration. So if you're if you hate reading, then you know, the audiobook will be available read by me. But then if you've also heard me ever read something on the air. I was gonna say it's two and a half days for just chapter one. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> well that's why I would say buy the book. You're gonna work <laughs> <laughs> you know also buy it and then because you never know. Um, but I'm going to do my best, and hopefully I'll be able to do it justice, because I'm the one who suffers if I don't. <laughs> um, I, I very much look forward to that. And also, be, there are some visually impaired people who will finally get a chance to hear the dulcet tones of your voice reading your, your <laughs> wonderful argument. I know a lot of people wanted the, the tampon voice <laughs> to do it. But instead, you get my. I'm gonna do my own version. I'm gonna do my own version. I'm gonna compete. I'm just gonna sell it on the black market. You should do it in black (laughs) vernacular. Oh God. (laughs) So now on to our main topic, Tamler. I think you sent this to me. I think I'd seen seen this on Twitter, but you emailed this uh, to me because I think you were outraged and you wanted some credit for for that. (laughs) It was making its rounds. I think uh, Lori Santos um, was the one that I saw. Right. So this is uh, it's a paper by 
um, I believe, two economists um, called Is Football a Matter of Life and Death or Is It More Important Than That? And it is answering, attempting to answer the question um, about a, an apparent paradox, which is that uh, football, in this case soccer, they, they mistakenly called soccer football in this football <laughs> throughout football, <laughs> um, that is trying to look at how the outcomes of football matches um, affect happiness. And the apparent paradox is that, you know, Oftentimes, and perhaps most of the time, um, I think just statistically, uh, your favorite team, if you're a fan, loses. And that actually causes a great deal of hedonic, whatever, negativity, right? Unhappiness. And so why, the question is, why do people, why do they insist on being such avid sports fans, football fans, when on average it makes you unhappy and so what they did is used a data set uh, that tracks people's happiness through the use of an app so this is a, a data set that i guess was collected um, a few years ago 2011 2012 um, that uh, randomly pings you throughout the day it's called experience sampling or momentary ecological assessment uh, that asks you a series of questions about what you're doing, um, how you feel. In this case, the the critical question is how happy are you? Um, there's a sliding scale of, of unhappy to happy. And what they did was they matched the respondents' answers who happened to be watching or attending a soccer match and... Through geolocation, they're able to, to, to know that they're actually at the soccer match and ask them how happy they were before the game, during the game, after the game, and how happy they were if their favorite team won or if their favorite team lost. And uh, importantly, I think whether or not that win or that loss was expected or unexpected. That was, they, they actually looked at a, the odds makers um, numbers they crunched all those numbers and they were able to determine whether it was an expected win or an expected loss and calculate w- what the effect of winning and losing is on your on your happiness and uh, they're able to sort of give a quantitative answer to what the effects uh, of this are and I don't know if you want to jump right into the results or if you um Hold on, let me let my bird clock finish. It says, it would appear from our results that football fans are irrational if we aggregate the effects of football match outcomes over the hours after a match, we see that the aggregate outcome is most likely to be overwhelmingly negative. This is because the negative consequences of losing on happiness are around five times higher than the positive consequences of winning. So you're right. much more unhappy when you lose than you are happy when your team wins. When your team wins. Yes. And I I will say, like, the, the paper itself, um, I think, does a decent job of of saying what the assumptions have to be in, in a study like this. One of the important tacit assumptions when people talk about, when, when economists talk about rationality, for instance, is they're talking about rationality in terms of self-interest. So their answer to what is rational and what is not is anything that increases utility is the rational thing to do. In this paper, they very specifically narrow the 
the definition of utility to happiness, which again is an is an assumption um, that we'll probably talk about. Um, and they uh, and they look at responses on this one item, and that item is. Let me get the phrasing. I, I have uh, a quote that I think is. So it says, "In this paper, we take utility, well-being, and happiness as one and the same concept, and use the terms interchangeably throughout the paper. We assume that when we ask people to rate how happy they are, they are giving us a snapshot of their well-being or utility." Right. The assumption that, the big assumption, which you're right, they lay out and credit to them for doing that. They assume that when we ask people, that when they ask people to rate through their mappiness app, which is what they call it, how happy they are at a given moment, those people are giving them a snapshot of their true well-being or happiness right. um, their, at that their current their current state and so to give you uh, uh the sense of what people are responding to they're getting their phone uh randomly pinged uh throughout the day anywhere between i think two to five times a day and um the critical question is a screen that pops up and it says do you feel and then it has three items and the first one is uh a scale, a sliding scale from left to right that is just labeled happy. And the very, very left of the scale is not at all. And the very, very right is extremely. So, Tambler, how, are, how happy are you feeling <laughs> right now? <laughs> I need more bourbon. Okay. So, uh, this is a slider scale, but it's a, it's a, it's a hundred. You know, you can code it to a hundred. I think so 58 very... is where I am right now. If, if you would let me get up and get another bourbon, then I'd be... Uh, then you would, it would yeah. go all the way. Um, and then mine would just equivalently slide down <laughs> that, that number. Until you um, did that line of code. <laughs> until I did the next line. Yeah. Um, I, I would hope cocaine makes you happier than bourbon, but maybe... I, I would maybe think it does. Pick my point. Um, I think critically here, and one of the things that they point out is that uh, one of the advantages of this experience sampling method is that you don't have to make cross-person comparisons because one of the big concerns sometimes in 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 measuring anything like a subjective state, but happiness maybe in particular, is that you know what does Tamler mean by fifty-eight versus what do I mean by fifty-eight? So right. the comparisons that they make in their models are to the individual. So the, the, critical, the critical outcome here is if Tamler is a 58, what is that compared to the average happiness that he's feeling throughout other activities? Right. So all of the results are, are for an individual, what is the relative impact of, of this particular activity, in this case watching a soccer match, on on their own happiness so that way you get around the fact that some so people like they like, would be comparing it with how i rate myself when i'm you know watching twin peaks right or or, or reading twitter feeds or yeah right. just ch- scouring through your old tweets <laughs> trying to find something i can shame you with um, and get you fired <laughs> you don't have to go that far back yeah like so and that's actually a really good and important point that you're making yeah because people people use scales differently you know people actually might differ in their in their just general right like objectively differ in how happy they are in general and you still want to measure the relative impact but they also might use scales differently like i might 
I might only use 70 to 100 because like because I'm healthy and like I'm right right or yeah. or just just no purely like so like if you could objectively match our happiness levels yeah <clears throat> you when you're feeling the same exact amount of happiness however one might define that um, you might rate that a 75 and I might rate that a 65 right. just because we use the scale. Differently. That's what I mean is like, so it could be that I, th- I, I don't think I have a right to go below 70 given right. that my family is right, healthy right. and I'm healthy. And like, so I'm just really going between 70 and a hundred, whereas you're going between 20 and a hundred based right. on like, Oh, I'm pissed off that I have to call Comcast <laughs> or something, you know? Right, right. So, so, so Yeah. Should we give our quick quick reactions? Well, yeah. Let me just really pre- present the critical the yeah. critical findings. Yeah. So, so they looked at people who were watching the game and people who attended the game, and what you get is that. And these coefficients don't make too much sense, but I'll just sort of report the the the, the general effect is that um, people uh, before a match are slightly happier um, than they are usually. After their team wins, <clears throat> that number goes from something like 1.5 to like 4. Um, again, these numbers don't make too much sense. They're, they're sort of these computated, uh, computed uh, indices. Um, but uh, after a win, the number is right around 3.9. After a, a draw, a tie, it's negative 3.2. And after a loss, uh, it's negative 7.8. And this is all after between zero and one hours afterwards. And that's when they just watch a game. The numbers just get bigger if they're attending the game. Yeah. Um, and so so the, the overall, the gist of the paper is that the magnitude of, as Tamler summarized before, the magnitude of the unhappy reporting after the game is, um, you know, like double that of then the, the relative contribution of the win to your happiness. Um, so you just feel shittier. And they look at this. Um, anywhere between zero and five hours after a game. And there's hundreds of thousands of people in this data set. So now I just really quickly want to say like what to give a sense of what these numbers mean when I say that it is a negative seven when your team loses or a negative eight um, or a positive three when your team wins. They also have other activities um, that they have data for in this data set. The highest, the most happy-inducing activity is intimacy or making love. And that's at a 12.5. Um, I always wonder in these studies, if I got interrupted while I was having sex, I, I don't think <laughs> yeah. answer the question, so I don't know what they're answering. Uh, sports- Excuse me, honey. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sports running and exercise are next at a 7.8. Uh, the very the the most miserable is being sick in bed, and that's at a negative nineteen. And the next most miserable one is caring or helping for adults at negative four point four. So worse than than that is seeing your team lose. Um, By care or helpful for adults, it's like I imagine it's wiping the diapers of your elder yeah, patient, uh, you know, yeah, or something like that. Um, yes, which. that is a special kind of hell. <laughs> okay, so I, I don't know. Let me just give quick a couple of quick reactions. I think number one that this is a really interesting question. Like, is it yeah. worth it? Especially for someone who, as as big a sports fan as I am, the question of whether it's actually worth it for me to be 
a, a, such a big sports fan, I think is is an interesting one. I know my chair, Dave Phillips, who uh, is a big Arsenal fan, so soccer, you know, the Premier League, he's British. Uh, he has told me flat out that being an Arsenal fan has a negative impact on his life. Like he wishes he never got involved in it. Just <laughs> he doesn't enjoy it, but he can't help it. Like he feels like there's nothing he can do at this point. But he it, he regrets it, and he w- if he could somehow go back in time and not become an Arsenal fan, he would. Uh, so That's I think this is true of 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 certain people so that's another thing to say about it um i also right it's personally- not it's not as if sorry just to add to that it's not as if it is by definition impossible to continue wanting to do something that makes you unhappy right right <clears throat> so like some people might define that out of they might say well no clearly like it's it's making you happy in some sense um or else you wouldn't do it no yeah. but like we want to like i want to say that it's not right like an addiction might be this way like i hate that i need caffeine every day but i still am going to do it <clears throat> you yeah. might actually choose to do something that makes you consistently unhappy like why do i keep doing this podcast yeah exactly you know, you're addicted to me you're addicted, you can't quit. addicted to you <laughs> uh, so and, and then the a, a further point in favor of this investigation is you know my chair knows that he's being made unhappy i think there are times where you're involved in something and it's it's not clear you think it's making you happy when in fact it isn't an example for me with this was probably the last six seven years that i did fantasy football slowly it i realized wait i hate this right this is actually making me making my sundays way less fun than they normally would be and just just the frustration and the stress of it and just the pain in the assness of it and and the way i knew that like it was like finally it dawns on me and then i just quit one year and i just realized right away oh my god it must be like you know somebody uh i don't know like somebody who's doing in some sort of self-destructive spiral all of a sudden stops doing it and it's like incomprehensible to them that they once thought that that was a good idea right uh, right it's like a it's like a bad relationship yeah too, right yes like, exactly right yeah. so all those things i will say are true that said i think the data that they give doesn't really get at why being a sports fan might make you happy and that any true sports fan would already know that losing is worse than winning. The, ha- the, the little bits of happiness you get from winning are not as pleasurable as the suffering you go through when the, your team loses. That's, I think, uh, something that f- we all f- understand really well. And that our sports fandom, the reason why we're sports fans, has a lot more to do with the sort of social part of being a sports fan, just the way in which it engages your activity, the, the way it keeps you, like all my friends from high school and college that I keep in touch with, a big way that we have been able to keep in touch, the reason why we're still talking often involves sports. I talk to my brother like five times as much as I normally would because we're such both such big sports fans and there's always something new to talk about. 
And it's, it's, it's something that is deeply enmeshed in our social lives. And this just, by the design of this study, just doesn't begin to acknowledge that. And so doing, I think it totally misunderstands why sports is meaningful to people. Like, I don't want to say that you couldn't be a real sports fan and write this paper, but it does feel like they're that the a person like doing this kind of analysis doesn't truly live what it is like what being a sports fan is all about. Okay, so so as I read this this paper, um, uh, like I I became a bit more sympathetic. I mean, in the first place, I, I think the authors actually are really careful about saying what they can and can't demonstrate, but. I don't think they would disagree with you <clears throat> about that. And in fact, in their in the discussion section, when they talk about like, here are reasons why this might not show what what we are saying that it might show, right? That that it is not in fact a demonstration of irrationality, and by irrationality, in a very narrow sense, it is not actually that that being a sports fan makes you less happy. There are a number of reasons why their data can't answer <clears throat> a whole variety of possibilities. And what you're saying is that it it is um, adding to your overall happiness in in ways that aren't accounted for in the paper, but um, I think there what you would really want is to see a pre post somebody who wasn't a sports fan um, become and then becomes a sports fan because I, as I understand your claim and may, maybe I'm not maybe it's more subtle than this is that all of those things. Um, you're getting from sports um, that you wouldn't be getting if it weren't for sports. And so you would, you so long as you trust that this is an accurate way of assessing happiness, and we could talk about that, um, that you would on average think that you would be happier um, after becoming a sports fan than before, right? Like that this is the value added is in some way accessible. I, yeah, so I, I guess I don't, Again, I think that sort of misunderstands what being a sports fan is all about. Like, it's it's not clear to me that somebody can be like a grown adult, not a sports fan, and then all of a sudden, it's not like taking up a hobby or something like that. It, it has to have been sort of a part of your past, a part of where you grew up, a part of how... didn't you just say that your chair became an Arsenal fan? No, no, no. He like... grew up an Arsenal fan. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm sure there was a moment as a child where he could have, or, you know, as a, I, and I don't even, I actually don't know. Maybe it was a teenager who knows when it was exactly, but I don't know. I, I don't know many cases personally, maybe you do of people not being sports fans and becoming a sports fan. Like, I, you know, it, you, you can all of a sudden sort of snap into being interested of who's going to win the the you know a lot of people in Houston are now all of a sudden might call themselves big Astros fans because they won the World Series last year they never watched them in their lives before right, yeah. but i don't think that that's this is what i mean like they're not really sports fans yeah yeah okay well i mean that's that's a fair point it's not quite what i'm saying though like what, i want to say that in principle the argument is that all things being equal the sports fan is deriving happiness that's what you're saying. So, like, you ought to be able to say, like, if if there was a Tamler twin universe that 
was yes. did not grow up a sports fan, right. that Tamler would not be as That's happy right. as you. That's okay. right. Yeah. So I um, and I would say that Tamler, and this is the thing that this doesn't measure, right? That Tamler would be talking to his brother a lot less. He would be much. Right. He would be less connected with his. Uh, right, his right, right. his childhood friends, then he he would have less to talk about when he's in some strange city with strangers. You know, he wouldn't right. be able to easily start up a conversation with somebody at a bar. So, right. uh, and maybe there are other ways in which, yeah, but maybe he'd be a, like a brilliant filmmaker, right? right you know, right. Or, so right, yeah. it's it's hard to know. It's it's um, very hard that, to know that. But I do think there are the things that I consider good about being a sports fan these don't even try to measure they it, it i don't think anybody thinks i'm a sports fan because it makes me happy after a game like that's just right. not how you decide whether you're being or whether it's good for you to be a sports fan so so you know you know sort of in the interest of what Tamler, you and i talked a little bit about beforehand we we didn't want to just pick a paper to to trash we wanted to like actually yeah. use this to have a discussion about what could be done and what couldn't and i think there are questions in the in the study of happiness happiness that may be intractable like that that can't actually be measured but i'm but like from what what you're saying answer me whether or not this would be a reasonable way to assess what you're doing suppose that you're only a football fan like you um, yeah like like suppose you're only a patriots fan um would do you think that you are happier during the season right than you are off season yeah i mean that's a great question and it's like and 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 i honestly don't know the answer like with the nfl is a great example because it is a kind of consuming thing on in the fall and like the time that you spend watching those games, you're not with your family. You're not right. taking like you're not taking a hike. You're not reading. And I do sometimes feel when the season is over a kind of relief. You know, <laughs> like it just frees up a day of the week for me. You know, like right. uh, and I and I and I've I've come to that sort of realization, and so definitely started to limit how much I watch. So but it's it, not because it's not because I think importantly not because of the misery of the losses. <laughs> no, right. It's just it's just the the fact that it's taking up time. It's taking um, up time that I could be doing something else. Where and and I think a study it, like that could sort of a study like this could at least get at that. Like this is why I think there is a there to the extent that you think, and I'm not sure what I don't know what you think about this. To the extent that getting pinged and rating your happiness is a reliable guide yeah. in any way to how happy you actually are. If if it is, then maybe I could have learned, you know, like my, the thing about fantasy football, I could have learned that earlier right, that, right, right. than I did, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I've never taken part in a study that I, where I get pinged. I, you know, like I think there is a, a, uh, there's a face validity to to the, you know, if you looked at the data and and people who got pinged when they were having a good meal didn't report being happier than when they were like getting an operation or something, then I, I, I would wonder. So I don't think the absolute numbers mean much. I do think that, that the relative comparison over time um, with enough observations, I, I, I like it's saying something. And, and what that something is, I'm not 100% sure. 
right? I don't know that it does good at teasing apart hedonic pleasure versus like overall value or meaning in an activity. I'm not, I'm not sure what people are answering, but, but like those questions aside, I think it's taking something interesting and, and quantifying it. Here's um, like, so for example, if, you know, if I get a readout that says, okay, you are on average like four, whatever, points less happy yeah. uh, when you're watching the four o'clock NFL game than when you're, you know, out taking your dogs for a hike or something like that. And that seems to be consistent and reliable. You know, you, that might start to get you to wonder whether... But but again, the question has to be way more specific than being a sports fan in general. And the, yeah, it, yeah, it has this, to be like, right. you know, is this thing that you do, this practice that you do, this way in which this is your fandom is manifesting itself, is that something that's making you happy? You know, like right. going to even going to a game. Like I like that they do that. Sometimes yeah. I wonder if going to a game makes you happier than just being able to watch it and talk about it but not having to go through all that or maybe right. it's way better to go to a game like i think that about right. college sports like it's it's often more fun to go to the game than it is to just be a fan of that team right you know? so, so like, they have they have actually an interesting finding there that that um because they have gps data they can see people who went to a game and they can also see how long they they stuck around and the highest bump in happiness is um, for people who stay at the stadium zero to one hours after the after right. their team won. Yeah, um, and, and that is kind of nice. I mean, there is it, it captures that social the celebration, the glow um, of the, the glow that right. you're actually with other people rather than just by yourself. Yeah, right. Um, the authors have a few uh, caveats at the end, or at least possible reasons why why they might not actually be showing that that what they think they're showing that, that it's irrational or that it makes you less happy. And so I want to talk about a few of these. So one of them is the possibility that, that people are uh, systematically overestimating the probability that their team will win. And so they uh, continue to go to matches because they think this is going to be the time where I'm going to be. So they're they're in they're chasing the dragon in yeah. some sense. Like they 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 are I mean, not being irrational in the sense that they really believe that this time their their team's going to win. Another one is that they um, might be um, not capturing all of the the positives. So they are assessing people after a loss or a win before the game and once sometimes during the game. But they say, well, maybe like when your team scores a goal, like that high is so high and they don't have enough refined, like precise data to capture enough of this. It could be that like, you know, your team scoring two goals, um, even when they lose three to two during those two goals, the your happiness spikes so high that if if aggregate happiness is a thing, maybe in fact they didn't capture that. Right. So maybe maybe they are getting uh, I mean, happy. I think that's stupid, but yes. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question about how this can how happiness should be aggregated. Like is is your overall happiness a sum of your experiences in this way or is it or not? Like, I think not. Like I just yeah. don't think that I mean that's the big problem which is a separate problem, you know, in in trying to determine like I I just don't think happiness ratings like added up tell I mean, you about is, your well-being in 
anything close to the way that is sort of being represented here. Well, so what they might be telling you is just, just in a very limited sense, your hedonic state at the moment. Yeah. And, um, and you know, to be fair, there are, there are researchers who have looked at like, um, assessment of overall well-being. So like, just how happy are you with life generally? And, um, and I don't know what the data are about whether or not the, I should look at the, I should look that up, um, about whether or not your momentary hedonic states, um, aggregate into, you know, are predictive of it. Um, it actually get, would get a little complicated because of course, if you're overall happy with your life, you probably are having more, more hedonic reporting. Um, but yeah, fair enough. That's there, there are the, hedonic state in the moment is very different from how happy you are with your life right and you can imagine that like you can have you can eat cotton candy every fucking day of the week and be happy and then you know but but you're just (laughs) like but you are just deeply unsatisfied with the way your life is going it's just that if i ping you when you're eating your cotton candy you might actually say yeah it's great Um, yeah and and that's i think a separate issue that you know so then just what you're not measuring life right. satisfaction in some broad rich way you're 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 me- it would still be again like with something like fantasy football or like watching the nfl like it would still be interesting to know your hedonics ratings um at various times during the day right and i think so there there's a number of other things but i wanted to get to the one that i think that that most closely captures what you were saying so this is their caveat number seven being in a tribe Another fact that we do not measure is the positive pleasure belonging to a wider group, quote unquote, a tribe. Anthropologists and novelists write about the utility and benefits conferred of being in a human to being in a human group. Part of the pleasure of a positive result is sharing it with a large group of other ecstatic fellow fans. The additional dimension of this effect is the identification of the individual with a group and the identity this confers. Right. So they go on. Well, so, but I want to finish that because I, because this one was also like, so then they say this belonging also means that. Benefits are derived from collectively hating those outside the tribe or those in another tribe. We may be able to investigate such effects if we separately distinguish those close rivals, Man City, Man United, Everton and Liverpool, Newcastle and Sunderland, Arsenal and Tottenham. Psychologists have discussed these effects and the derived pleasure some fans get from the misfortunes of their close rivals. I mean, so all of that is true. When the Red Sox swept the Yankees uh, last weekend, (laughs) the first thing, and this is just common practice, I go to our Yankees blogs. Like, (laughs) Yankees, like, I want to see, like, their pain. Like, I want to drink it in. And that is really fun, you know? But, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, they say this, and also I think the networking effects, although that one they seem like is, that one seems like they're, you know, approaching it too clinically. This one is, I just don't know though, if the way they would go about measuring it is the, is the right way. So the implication there is you, you would expect if what they're saying is right, sports fans who are fans of teams in heated rivalries are going to be, uh, happier than those not, and I don't know that that's true, you know. Yeah, because it also I, makes you more miserable. Yeah, I I don't know. Like I, 
I will say this. I share your sad, your dissatisfaction with the way um, almost treatment of, of these happiness data um, as obvious measures of what people are interested in and what they're saying when they say they're happy. Um, and I think that this paper actually was uh, way more careful in laying out the possibilities that they're not actually capturing what people mean when they say that they're happy. Because I actually think that it is so common in, say, the psychology uh, research on happiness to completely uh, dismiss most of these possibilities. And one, and maybe there's a larger question about just the study of happiness um, to, 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 to discuss, because, like, I'll take the classic example of having kids making you less happy, yeah. right? This is, like, the, the standard thing that, like, social psychologists like to trot out there. Like, oh, did you know that you're less happy? And, um, and I, I, I think that it is completely, <laughs> completely obvious that they're missing, pinging somebody and getting their hedonic state is just the wrong, the wrong measure, right? It's, it is capturing something but it is not capturing any of a host of things that people find valuable. Now, economists at least say like, no, look, we're looking at, we're like, we're calculating hedonic states as a metric of utility, which is the input we're using into whether or not people are rational. That is at least a more careful claim than saying that this one item is actually assessing your overall happiness in life. And that's where, where I worry a bit much. This at least reads like a paper where they're like, this is one first step. Like given these data now, like we have a bunch of additional questions that we might be able to ask. And so you might be able to cast the net wider um, and actually try to get at the various things that go into this. Like I actually am curious about whether or not being a sports fan is a great way of getting into a tribe whereas you wouldn't have had it before right like maybe yeah. maybe this is serving a proxy for that very deep human need of being a tribe and i actually really do think that that one way of mitigating the misery of a loss is by shitting on the other team right like this or is commiserating the with uh like you know again like there's nothing that brings old friends together like commiserating right. about you know just a brutal loss you That's know, right. Like, we're and like constantly like all my friends, we're we're talking to each other. And then like also other people are calling us and texting us. And like, you know, it's just right. like this big grief community, which sounds silly, but like only silly if you're not really a fan. I mean, the world the World Cup to me is like I was actually bummed because the World Cup this year, like I very, very much relate to the misery of like as a, somebody who who yeah. is, is an Argent, Argentine born with Argentine family. Like the World Cup every four years is a way in which I keep in contact with family members. Um, I look forward to that and friends. And my family happened to be on a cruise without without my ability to contact them during the World Cup. And it sucked. Yeah, it fucking sucked. Yeah. And like, and there's a way in which I think you could, you could, try to tease apart because i think that the rational or like the the reasonable person who is doing a study like this and gets pinged like say say you're about to like call your friends and discuss how miserable you are if if i ask you how how unhappy are you or how happy are you after your team lost i think that you would reasonably give the response that you're really fucking unhappy because your team lost the super bowl or something and that you wouldn't 
just as a way of of like understanding what the study is asking that you wouldn't figure into this that you're talking to friends and commiserating because when you're talking to your friends and being like I'm so fucking upset that like whatever the Celtics lost to the Lakers and you get a ping that says how upset are you you're going to say you're going to say you're upset but like it's very very hard to be able to assess the fact that you're talking to a friend is actually bringing you some pleasure because I don't think that it is either immediately obvious that you're supposed to or even introspectively obvious that this is mitigating the the misery and and in fact later on as you talk for an hour and you talk about like how's your wife doing or how are your children doing like that that actually might bring additional pleasure that you wouldn't have gotten so it's fucking like it's a hard it's a hard thing to study, but I think that with at least these tools, so, we might be able to start getting. So that's I mean, my question. Like, and this is the one I don't know the answer to. So, are these tools in the end? Are they ultimately like they just need to be perfected, improved upon, maybe improved upon a lot, and then they'll give us a truer, more illuminating picture? Or are they just doomed from the start because you're trying to measure something too complex with a methodology that just can't capture that? It's just a, like a misfit, right? And so yeah. let me put the question this way. like I think both of us recently, maybe more than in the earlier episodes, we're, we both are united by the the fear and maybe suspicion that works of art are better at capturing or illuminating many of the questions that our own field is investigating that are, <laughs> right. than our field is right. Like right. that art is doing a better job making us understand moral responsibility than analytic philosophy or psychology. Um, you know, so in this context, I don't know, something like Fever Pitch, the Nick Hornsby memoir about being uh, a soccer fan. Is that going to tell you more about the costs and benefits of being a sports fan than any kind of empirical study? Now, of course, you don't have it's not necessarily one or the other, but I sometimes wonder if we're just that's the thing that's going to help us understand more than uh, trying to get right. these precise metrics. I don't know. That was yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I. I mean, I sh- like yeah. Uh, that resonates with me, of course. I like. There is a way, and there's so there's there's the worry that that um, the process of divide and conquer that is that is at the heart of the scientific method and at the heart of analytic philosophy of narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and systematically tackling a small piece of a question in 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 the hopes that you can build it back up and build a bigger picture it might be ill suited for certain features of human experience like it 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 and i think that 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 comes across in what we've been saying that that there is a way in which the holistic experience of life satisfaction may not be very well captured by any of the methods that we might use um, to analyze, right, like ch- like little chunks of experience with ten point scales or hundred point scales, it might that, actually be distorting. It might be distorting. Now, then I think that there are ways, though, in which as we get better methods and especially as we get more data, that we can make progress into answering some of the questions that 
that aren't that domain. Like there aren't, they aren't like, how do I get a sense of what the value of a human life is or like the value of participating in this endeavor is like, I, I think that those, those might be out of reach. Um, but what is within reach is, is I think some surprising, we can get some surprising results out of this and it would take a little more than, than a single study, but, but here's an example of, of like some, something that might actually be true and illustrate some, some, something important about human psychology. So for one, we could be surprised about what, how much hedonic value we get. So there might be some people who don't realize that they are more miserable after a loss and they are happy after a win. Um, now, and that, that from their own reporting, they get it. Um, they, they see like some sort of summary chart at the end of the week and they're like, holy shit, every time I'm talking to my kid, I'm actually happier than when I'm working on a paper or something. Now, the value of that, I don't know. But, but I think the real value will come from getting these kind of data over large groups of people over long periods of time and figuring out some questions like, what are the effects of, suppose that you're like, fuck it, I still value uh being a sports fan and a Patriots fan, like, you know, I, whatever, like I'm Laker fan, I bleed fucking purple and gold. Like, don't tell me what's, what makes me happy or not. I might truly value that. But what if I realize that I am hedonically more miserable over time, but importantly that, that my hedonic ratings track something like my sleep or my weight or my blood pressure and that this is actually like an important thing to understand about me and and we can learn little chunks of things that that how these experiences actually affect the rest of our lives like and and i think that's actually becoming a possibility with like people who wear like fitbits or apple watches or something that tracks their their patterns um, in a physical sense, there are people who figured out that like the days that they walk more steps, they actually sleep more at night, like the quality of their sleep. And I think you could find some su surprising psychological uh, insights from from this as well, with a caveat always that like this is measuring what, you know, it's only as good as you are at, at introspectively assessing your hedonic state and whatever, you know. Yeah, no, um, but it still might, as you say, like bring to light some surprising facts about yourself, facts right. that you didn't know. I mean, like I honestly think that you could have, like it would be, I, I, I would, I'd be really interested in like my hedonic rating Sundays during football season versus not. Right. You know, <laughs> like I don't know and it wouldn't surprise me if they're significantly lower. Right. Now, what I'm not sure is whether that would convince me to not, not watch sports. I like... <laughs> The odds, for instance, of uh, of me being happy at the end of a World Cup season, I know are so astronomically low. Right, right. Right? It's like nothing but pure misery. And I might be like, well, fuck it. Like, that's just what I'm going to do. Right. Like, <laughs> like, but again, but those that having the data are actually like they might be valuable. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it doesn't mean, oh, you're being irrational for watching the World Cup and loving Argentina cause, and that it's actually making you less happy. But it just tells you something. Like if, if you sufficiently narrow the question, yeah. then it is no longer distorting unless, you know, the measuring tools are bad. But like it's right. no longer distorting. And it's and it's usually and and this is also a a, a product of the way the things like this paper was promoted. People were saying like 
watching sports makes you unhappy. Uh, like it's <laughs> irrational to be a sports fan. Like that's how this was being passed around right. on Twitter and various other places. And you know, those are the things where no, it's not doing any of those things. But maybe, right. but it, what it is telling you is how you feel right after a game. So, so here's a question. Um, uh, there are plenty of experiences that um, that you might not know would make you happy. So, I'll, I'll give an example of uh, a real simple example. Like, I was afraid of roller coasters. Eh, afraid is strong, but like, I was very reluctant to ride roller coasters when I was a kid. Like I thought, this that, is like, not why a guilty you... confession. So. <laughs> this is not a guilty confession. There's not. It's not a euphemism for doing drugs. Um, uh, so I, I was like, you know what? Like, why the hell would I put my life in danger? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I get motion sick easily. The first time I rode a roller coaster was just through sheer peer pressure, and I was like, that was fucking amazing. I want to do it again, right? And ever since then, I've been an avid roller coaster rider. I just had to get past that hump. Could these could data like this like um, and I'm thinking in in some sense of of Lori Paul's argument that there are experiences that are so transformative that you have no idea beforehand what it would feel like. This isn't exactly about that because because she claims that you're changed by those experiences, so the ratings wouldn't be valid. But you can imagine that people came to me and said, you know, uh, here is how most people who are afraid of roller coasters feel beforehand, and this is how they feel after they ride a roller coaster. And you could see the spike. That might serve to to convince me that maybe I should try it, right? Like, and normally we would do this by asking our friends or like, hey, did you, you know, like, but, but maybe some data like that could actually lead you to find things that you would be happy about because people like you, like a Netflix recommendation algorithm. Like I never thought like if they, I could, I suppose they could get so good that I'd be like, I would never want to watch that show, but I trust it so much that I watch it and you're right. I do feel happier or more satisfied now. I don't know. Yeah. No. You know, this is one that I feel like I already know the answer to, but I'm sure there's a lot of other things like this that I don't. Watching documentaries. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. think... I think when I'm watching one, I'm really, really happy and fulfilled. And and yet, like, I never f- feel that way when I'm trying to choose a movie. Like, people put documentaries on their cues and, like, never watch them. Yeah. Like that's that's sort of me. Like I'm that's this is my guilty confession, new new guilty confession segment. Like it might be helpful for me to just get that, even though I already suspect this, but just to get the readout of like how it actually is. But then there's probably other things like that that I don't already know the answer to, and those things could be really illuminating. You just have to sufficiently narrow the question. Exactly, exactly. You got to know what they're answering, and it's important to know like what. To, to actually do the work of, of saying, like, this is what this is answering. Like, there are some really, real simple hedonic things where it's an obvious, like, you know, like, how much does this hurt, right? So there's, there's some work on, you know, people over underestimating how much pain something is going to involve and, like, that predicts whether or not they're going to go back to that, do that procedure or whatever. Like, in, when the scope is that narrowed, the, I think you're right. The big problem is when, and I think a, a lot of, social psychologists do this is the overclaiming part and the and and the the taking these to be measures of something that they they can't be they just simply can't be right um yeah all right yeah. well are you happy are you happier now i am i'm rating i'm at a <laughs> 72 
I, you know, doing, doing this podcast gives me such pleasure that no app could ever, could ever cap- capture this because, you know. It's too rich it's, and calm. It's, uh, hedonically, they'll always be low. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I don't love it. That's right. And yeah, no, the, you, no study, no <laughs> empirical. You can't quantify me. Ike, though, I think that that we could tell if you're racist by just counting the number of tweets in which you said racist things. I think that's the future. If it's fair game, if it's after 2016, (laughs) before that, amnesty. Uh. (laughs) All right, uh, join us next time on Very Bad Wizard.